0: Hello, welcome to Workplace Wake Up. I'm Jen Shaw. Every week I spend about 15 minutes covering legal developments, introducing you to interesting guests and providing some entertainment to start your work day. Okay, we're here to talk about the new supplemental COVID-19 sick leave. Erica, I'm so glad you're here with me. All of you know Erica Frank from our firm. Erica, things are a little confusing right now, right?
1: Yes, that is an understatement. And as our listeners know, we did do a quick podcast when SB 114 was first passed. And since that time, we've received a number of questions from clients asking us, like, what does this all mean? Uh, So we have some more information to provide.
0: Now, just to be clear, everyone, the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement did release their poster, which I, I just feel compelled to say is incomplete. It does not even address testing the faqs don't provide much more guidance although we did get some clarification part of the problem here is that we've got a bill that was rushed through the legislature and then we have faqs and that's it we don't have any other way to interpret what the legislature's intent was now we do have sb 95 which was last year's version of COVID 19 supplemental sick leave But this year's bill, as you already know, if you listened to our last uh, episode, is a lot different. And it contains some aspects that I don't think employers are going to be that excited about.
1: Right. So, Jen, let's talk just about a few things that we thought it was important for employers to know about, because as they know, at this point, the compliance date was February nineteenth, twenty twenty-two. So you mentioned the notice, which means if you're listening now and you have not posted that notice or transmitted it electronically to your call uh, to your employees, please do so once you finish listening to our podcast because it's really important that you do so. So a couple of things, Jen. One of the questions that I know you've received. Is whether SB 114 applies to employees that work remotely outside of California?
0: That's right. And don't I wish we had a clear answer to that question? The short answer is we don't think so. And that's based on a lot of different provisions of the law and the way California law has interpreted some other provisions. The key really is that the employer has employees in California. Now, All 26 of them don't have to be in California, right? So the idea is the employer has 26 or more employees, at least one of whom is in California. Obviously, with remote work, this is challenging, Erica, because how do we count somebody who works for a company, for example, that's only located in California? They moved to Utah during the pandemic. They're reporting into the California office they very well may be treated as a California employee. You all are going to need to talk to your lawyers about this because there are a lot of different factors that go into that analysis. The bottom line that we want you to take away today, though, is if you're an employer with 26 or more employees and you have one of them who either reports to California or actually lives in and resides and works in California, you're going to be subject to
1: AB 114. Awesome. Okay, let's talk briefly about these two buckets of time. And, you know, different law firms describe them differently. We've been saying buckets because it just seems to be the easiest way to describe it. But employees are entitled to up to 80 hours of COVID 19 sick leave. However, what's different this time around is that 80 hours is divided into two buckets each bucket with up to 40 hours. And I know this has caused some confusion. Now there's two different qualifying reasons for each bucket. Jen, can you just summarize each bucket?
0: Absolutely. So the first bucket is what we're used to from SB95. You are subject to a quarantine or isolation order. You have COVID-19 symptoms and you're seeking a medical diagnosis. There are other requirements now that apply to family members. So you are caring for a family member uh, who may have COVID-19. You have been diagnosed with COVID-19. So bucket one is going to look familiar. It's a little more expansive than SB95 because it does cover family members. The second bucket is sort of the one that's causing some consternation. It is, by definition, four folks who have tested positive for COVID-19, either the employee or the employee's family member. So parents, spouse, child, registered domestic partner, um, et cetera. All of the family members who are covered by labor code section 246 are healthy workplaces, healthy families, act to sick leave. Now, there are two buckets, but here's what you got to know employees get to choose which bucket they want to use. And the more Erica and the other attorneys in our firm and I have talked about this, it's basically 80 hours, folks. I mean, you might just be better off saying, here's 80 hours, use it for any of these reasons that are covered by bucket number one or bucket number two, because employees get to choose what bucket they want to use. And this is something, if you listen to our webinar Um, Last week, I want to make sure you all understood because I think it was a little bit confusing. Right now, if somebody tests positive for COVID, they are subject to the California Department of Public Health's isolation and quarantine guidance. That means that they have to stay home for at least five days, whether or not they are vaccinated. So what that means is somebody who tests positive right now is going to be covered under category number one of the first bucket which is you're subject to an isolation or quarantine order. Now, at some point before this law expires on September 30th, 2022, that isolation or quarantine guidance might change. But for now, if you test positive, you are automatically going to isolate or quarantine for five days. So you're going to be covered under bucket number one, no matter what. So this is why we've sort of decided that for many of you, it's gonna make sense to just give everyone 80 hours and tell them you can use the the 80 hours for these purposes, all of the reasons covered by category number one, and then the um, testing requirement for category or bucket number two.
1: That's right. And just to be clear, the way the law is stated and the way the labor commissioner has interpreted the law, the employee, however, gets to decide Do I want to use my 40 hours of time because I tested positive or do I want to use bucket one 40 hour, the catch all because I fall under that uh, CDPH guidance, quarantined and isolation?
0: Well, that's right. And one of the reasons why it's an interesting issue is because you can't get documentation for leave taken under the first bucket, but you are entitled to proof of a COVID-19 test. Certainly, if they want more than five days off, more than the 40 hours, you're going to get a test. There's some question about whether you might be entitled to the test, even if it's the initial request they make for leave. We were hoping the FAQs would make that clear, and they haven't. So this is one of the reasons why we're saying, look, when you get to this point of how you want to actually administer this sick leave, one of the things that we do in our firm is try to provide our clients and our friends guidance on how to practically implement these rules. So it's one thing for us to tell you what the statute says or what the FAQs say, but we want you to know what the heck you're supposed to do with them. And so for some of you, you really probably want to consider doing that one bucket, just full 80 hours. Now, of course, that's 80 hours for your full-time employees, however you define your full-timers. So in our office for our staff, full-time is defined as 37 and a half hours a week. They're still going to get 80 hours.
1: And really important thing to note, too, as far as the document retention requirements and record-keeping for uh, COVID-19 supplemental sick leave tracks, what's required under the mandatory sick leave. So employers should be familiar with that. But I'm so glad you mentioned documentation, Jen, because there are provisions of the bill, particularly as it relates to bucket two, that allows an employer to request proof of a COVID-19 test. And we have you know, the, the two tests, if you will, the initial tests that show that the employee tested positive and then the option for the employer to require the employee to test at day five. What I wanna ask you about, however, is if an employee sends the employer, let's say a screenshot from their cell phone of their rapid COVID-19 test result, does that screenshot or does that documentation become medical information that the employer needs to retain and treat as they would any other medical documentation?
0: Probably so, Erica. right? Right. And that's the thing that's a little tricky for folks because it doesn't seem like medical documentation. It's not coming from a doctor's office. It doesn't contain any medical information per se, but that positive test is something that you're going to want to retain and you're going to have to treat it as you would any other medical information. So it's stored separately from a personnel file under lock and key, only accessible to people who need to know.
1: Right, and the law doesn't address this, folks, and neither does the Labor Commissioner's FAQs, but if you go look at the DFEH's COVID-19 guidance, where, you know, that's been out for a while, but it certainly addresses what to do when test results are provided, and it does indicate to keep it and maintain it as confidential. So that's really important, because that's nowhere in SB 114, nor is it in the Labor Commissioner's um, website. Okay, we are almost running out of time because I know we love to keep these nice and tight. Um, But retroactivity, that is certainly something that has come into play. And we've received a couple of nuanced questions as well. Um, Just let's quickly break it down for our, our listeners. The timing is very important here. We know that the law was signed on February 9th. Employers needed to begin uh, complying on February 19th and it was retroactive to January 1st. So it's like back to the future, you know, 2022. That's right. so, so if an employee was sick with Omicron in December and was took a leave of absence and they use their healthy families, healthy workplace, healthy families leave, Can an employee seek a retroactive payment for that leave that they took in December? Not in December.
0: It's got to be after January 1. Now, we had a question from a client, you know, um, that an employee who tested positive on December 31st but didn't take any time off until January 1. Well, they took time off for COVID on January
1: 1, so they're covered. That's a great example. Great example. Okay, next, the ability to request retroactive leave, we know now that the timing has to be within, you know, January 1st, 2022, moving forward into 2022. What about if someone was sick with a cold, they thought maybe it was COVID, nothing was ever verified. Um, you know, we know that the symptoms are so similar. For What are the reasons for which an employee can obtain retroactive payment?
0: So only for the same reasons that they could actually take the sick leave. Now, now, certainly remember that one of those provisions under bucket number one is you have symptoms that may be related to COVID-19 and you're seeking medical diagnosis. So if you think you've got COVID and you go to the doctor and it takes you two days to get an appointment, those two days are going to be covered by SB 114. When you get the negative result that says, hey, you don't have COVID, now you're not covered by SB 114. And now you're just taking time off because you got a cold.
1: Okay, there's a lot here. All right, as we wind up, Jen, what are the two things, the two really key takeaways that we want our listeners to remember once they're done listening to us chat about this law? Um, What are a couple of key takeaways that you could provide them?
0: So one of the things is you need a policy. I've talked to a lot of folks who are saying, well, why do you need a policy? Because we're in a situation where we've got FAQs, we've got the law. Because you have to decide how you're going to do this, folks. You have to decide how you're going to implement it. Where are people going to provide the the notice? How are you going to store the documentation? So you need policies and procedures. The other thing I really want you to know is There's a lot of controversy about all of these rules, and I know we all have our own personal views, but you don't want to be caught in the crosshairs on these kinds of compliance issues. These are the things that can really get you into trouble. So when we're talking about requirements of the labor code, and of course, this is now one of them, we now have a new provision of the labor code, 248.6, right? Right. When we think about that, the first thing that should come to your mind are four letters that are dreaded by employers. P-A-G-A, PAGA, right? These can be PAGA claims. So we've got to be really careful about compliance. I know we've all got our views and perspectives, but don't make this harder on yourselves. Get it done. Get your policy done. Get your procedures done and focus on taking care of your business, taking care of your people, taking care of your clients and doing the right thing. Thank you, Jen. Oh, thank you, Erica. And thank you everyone for listening to us. We appreciate the time you spend with us and we hope these podcasts are helpful and entertaining and just provide a little bit of benefit to you as you go about your workday. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to spread the word, please share with others, post about it on social media and or rate and review it. Of course, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and email us at info at
1: Workplace Wake Up, including its guests and hosts, do not provide legal advice in this podcast. Do not act upon any of the information discussed in this podcast without consulting a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction.